Well, if you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to Paul's epistle to the Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 8. If you're new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, it's typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, Periodically, we sprinkle that with shorter series of messages, and uh, we have been working our way through John's Gospel, but today we're going to launch um, seven weeks in Romans chapter 8. I've been asked several times, why Romans chapter 8? Because I really, really want to. I don't know if I'll live long enough to preach through Romans. I don't know if I'll live long enough to preach through John, but uh, if I never get to Romans, I will at least, by God's grace, have gotten us through Romans chapter 8. Well, I want to read for you this morning the first four verses of Paul's letter to the Roman church, and if you're able, I would ask you to please stand. Now, what I'm about to read and what you're about to hear is God's Word. It comes to us through a hand-picked emissary, representative, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you're going to hear are the words of our Lord, spoken through, given to us through an apostle of his own choosing. And so therefore, these words come to us with all of God's authority. These words are without any error. These words are living and active and therefore make us alive. And so let's give these words our full attention. This is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, O God, we ask that in your mercy and in your goodness, you would, by your Spirit, speak to us through your Word, and that we would receive it with faith and with joy. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, correct us if we are erring, encourage us, give us hope, And once again, affix your great and precious promises to our heart that we might walk with you in faithfulness and joy. This we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, if we were to liken the scriptures to a mountain range of massive, glorious peaks... I think we could say that the 8th chapter of Romans would be its highest peak. Martin Luther called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, we don't typically reckon Scripture that way. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and given for our good. All of it is. None of it is optional. None of it we can throw away because they're better bits. We understand. We don't 
typically think of Scripture in that way. And yet, we understand that there are some portions of Scripture that seem to encompass so much truth in a relatively brief you know, piece of real estate and so many glorious promises that we go to it again and again and again. And certainly that is the case with Romans 8. For generations, Romans 8 has been compared to the Bible's highest summit. It's Acropolis, the apex of the New Testament. It's been called the tree in the Garden of Eden, uh, the inner sanctuary of the cathedral of the Christian life. And all of this reverence for Romans chapter 8 makes perfect sense, I think, because it is filled with the most precious truths that God has to give to his people. It reveals some of his most precious promises, both in this life and for the life to come. The great promises of Romans 8 encompass the entirety of the Christian life, from our liberation from the condemnation of sin to the comfort that is ours as we suffer in this fallen world, to the promise of future glory in which nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. It is all encompassed here in Romans chapter 8. Throughout his letter to the Roman church, Paul has been building a superstructure of Christian theology. And like a skilled designer and craftsman, he has been taking the materials provided by the Lord in his word and crafting a stunningly beautiful cathedral of truth. And the truth covers everything from God's holiness and his grace. The truth concerning human sin and human neediness and the truth concerning the Christian life in the here and now and in the life to come. And I would say this, so long as I am your pastor, whether I am preaching through Romans 8 or not, I, I hope never to leave Romans 8. And for that sake, we might as well say I hope to never leave Romans 5 or 6 or 7 or 8. One writer summarizes the promises to be found in Romans chapter 8 as three no's. No condemnation, no defeat, no separation. It's a portrait of life in the Spirit, which is in stark contrast to life under the power of sin and under the condemning sentence of the law. We see this in Romans chapter 7, for instance. The life in the Spirit that Paul describes here in Romans 8 is not a special sort of life reserved for really kind of special forces Christians, the elite of the elite. What Paul describes here is to be normal experience for everyone who is in Christ. It's not just to be the experience of a few. Rather, life in the Spirit is the ordinary Christian life, which begins at the moment of the new birth. And it endures through this groaning life in a groaning world and proceeds on into eternity, inseparable from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit is referred to no fewer than 19 times in Romans chapter 8. That means that the Holy Spirit is mentioned nearly once for every two sentences. And still, as one commentator puts it, quote, Paul's focus is not so much on the Spirit as such, 
but on what the Spirit does. And perhaps this is the best way to learn about the Spirit. The Spirit is best known in His ministry on behalf of Christians. It is those blessings and privileges conferred on believers by the Spirit that are the theme of this chapter. Now, in this relatively brief series of messages, we're looking at seven, and I mean, that's like lightning quick for us, isn't it? We will examine the heights and the depths of God's grace for us in Christ. We will see that there is no flinching on the part of the Apostle concerning the reality of this fallen world, life's sufferings, the sorrows under which this entire created order groans. And I am well aware of the fact that many of us in this place today are groaning under the weight of it. Paul does not flinch from naming those realities. But neither is there any reticence on the Apostle's part. There's not a single hesitancy. There's not one faltering step from the Apostle in assuring us that even the worst of the world's maledictions against us cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now in our remaining time, we're going to consider, first of all, the Christian's assurance. Then we'll look at the Christian's liberty. And finally, we'll consider the Christian's walk. First of all, the Christian's assurance. If we could sum up the central theme of Romans chapter 8 in one word, assurance would almost certainly be the best word for the job. That's what we hear in the very first words of this chapter. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are words of assurance for the Christian. This whole chapter is about assurance. So verses 5 through 11, for instance, we have full assurance of our salvation because, verse 9, we are no longer ruled by the flesh but ruled by the Spirit of God. Verses 12 through 17, we have assurance that in Christ we are, without exception, all of us, children of God. Verses 17 through 25, we have assurance that even in our suffering and sorrow, knowing that nothing we suffer can compare to the glory that is to be revealed in us when we see Jesus Christ. Verses 26 and 27, we have the assurance that even in our desperate weakness, the Spirit helps us. Verses 28 through 30, we have the assurance that God is committed to bringing to glory all those whom he has predestined according to his sovereign will. And verses 31 through 39, we have the assurance that nothing, not even the worst of circumstances, not the vilest and most wicked of evildoers, can separate us from the love of God. And here, in the first four verses, we have assurance because of what the Father has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the ransom price for our sin. This is the Christian's great assurance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Now, when Paul uses the term therefore, it's because he's building upon what he has already established. And that certainly goes back, in this case, to chapter 5. The opening words of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And at least from that moment on, this therefore, in chapter 8, verse 1, connects directly back there. So he has been building all this way. And so our assurance is built upon something that God has objectively accomplished. This is important. Lest we think that what justifies us before God is some feeling of kind of whimsical sentimentality on God's part. Because that will come and go. That sort of thing comes and goes. No, what Paul has been building by using forensic, legal language is that our peace with God... Our being justified before God is based upon objective accomplishments, objective acts, whereby we have been declared righteous in Christ. This is why it's so important for Paul to use the language of the courtroom, the language of justice, in describing our peace with God. Now, I want you to look at your Bible, look right at it, and look at verse 1 again. If you had, while you're still looking at verse 1, if you had a Greek New Testament before you, you'd see that the word order is different from what it is in most English translations. Now that doesn't mean there's a problem there. It's just if you know anything about translating one language to another, sometimes you have to do that in order for it to make sense in the language or for it to read better. But the way that the Greek, the New Testament Greek works is that you will place, typically at the beginning of a sentence, the word that sets out the control for that sentence. Kind of the determinative word. The key word will be the first word that appears in the word order in a Greek New Testament. And if you had a Greek New Testament before you, you'd see that the word uden, no, appears first. In Greek, that means that it has the definitive function in that statement. No, none, not one iota of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the first word. The first thing Paul wants us to hear is no. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Lest I be misunderstood, Paul is saying. I'm not saying that there's very little condemnation. I'm saying there is none. Yeah, but what about none? But what if I... No! None. This is formal proclamation from God to Christians. There is not a single sin that can accuse the one who is in Christ Jesus. This is the key for us, those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a general word to every human being. This is to those, this is a promise made to those who are in Christ. This is is your location as a Christian. You are in Christ. You may be in Virginia, but more importantly, you are in Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite ways to describe a Christian. You read through his epistles and you will see this over and over and over again. How does he describe the Christian? The Christian is someone who is in Christ. So 
what's his is yours. You are the beneficiary of his perfect obedience, his atoning death, and his victorious redemption. Why? Because you are in him. You are in Christ. I love the words from Sir Marcus Lone. Quote, He, that is Christ, was for us in the place of condemnation. We are in him where all condemnation has spent its force. I heard Sinclair Ferguson once, and I will not use the Scottish accent, but I I heard him once give something of a rundown of some of the great sinning saints in biblical history. And what this truth must mean for them. If we were to ask Noah, Noah, what does Romans 8.1 mean to you? What would he say? I think he would greet it with something like this. I'll tell you what it means to me. I was a recipient of God's great grace, his free grace. He protected me and my family, preserving us in a wicked world full of violence and debauchery and idolatry. Every gross sin that mankind has ever known or indulged in had encompassed the whole world except God had saved my family, Noah would say. And he delivered us, not only from that, but then he delivered us from his judgment and he protected us in an ark of safety. And we saw his covenant faithfulness. I, with my own eyes, saw his covenant faithfulness over and over again. I literally saw it written in the sky for us. And he brought us safely to a new home and a new place and made tremendous lasting promises to us that would bless the whole world. And then, after all of that, I lay drunk in my tent. And I debased myself. And I sinned against my Lord. How do you think Noah feels about these words? There is, therefore, now, No condemnation, Noah. Or Isaiah, one of Israel's greatest prophets, a prophet among prophets, a man who would have certainly been gifted with words and with speech. He was sent forth to be a prophet to God's people and became one of their greatest prophets, prophesying against the enemies of God's people, calling God's people to repent, but also giving these precious promises about the Messiah who was to come, the Messiah who would be born of a virgin who, and who would bear the sins and the iniquity of God's people. This is the prophet that we go to time and time again to be reminded of the great promises that Christ has fulfilled. And certainly he would have been skilled with great gifts of speech. And yet nevertheless, what did he do when he saw the Lord in the temple? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. God's greatest gifts to Isaiah got all tangled up with his sin. What do you think Romans 8.1 means to him now? Isaiah, there is now no condemnation. Or think of Peter. A man granted a privilege that literally only a few in the history of the world ever had. A chosen disciple of Jesus. A man who walked with Jesus, literally, 
witnessing every miracle, hearing every word. And yet this man who declared that he would never betray his Lord in a moment of pathetic and profane cowardice denied repeatedly that he had ever even known him. Hear this, Peter. There is no condemnation. No condemnation. None for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can trace that line of saved sinners all the way down through redemptive history until we come to your name. And we could bring up an inventory of your sin. We could turn the light on in the darkest rooms of your heart where you have failed yourself and failed your Lord. We could bring it all up and heap it up into one giant accusatory mountain. Too high, too wide for you to either get over or get around. And all of it crumbles down into ash in the face of this one promise. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we love to sing Charity Bancroft's old hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. The Christian's assurance. Secondly, consider the Christian's liberty. The Christian's liberty, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, for, it is a connecting word. One thing is grounded in the other. For. This is how you can tell that there is no condemnation for... Now Paul uses the word law, nomos. He uses it in different ways depending on what he's trying to get across. And here, when he says, for the law, for the law of the Spirit, from the law of sin and death, when he uses it here in verse 2, this word nomos, law, is a reference to... Not to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, but rather he's using it in the general sense of being a binding authority. Elsewhere, Paul uses the term law in this way. A principle, a binding authority. And so he's using law to refer to whatever it is that has binding authority over us. And here he's contrasting two laws, two principles of authority. The binding authority of sin or the binding authority of the Holy Spirit? Which will it be? And all of us, without exception, live in and under and through either the law of sin and death or the law of the Spirit of God. Outside of Christ, we remain in Adam. That is, we remain in sin. If we are not in Christ, then we are in sin, under the law of sin and death under its controlling authority. That doesn't mean that all of us who are outside of Christ, that every non-Christian is as sinful as they could be, and thank God that's not true. But it does mean that ultimately, 
because they are not in Christ, it means they are in or under the law of sin and death. They're bound to it. But if we are in Christ, then we live by the law of the Spirit of life. That's just another reference to the Holy Spirit. And if we are under the controlling authority of the Holy Spirit by being in Christ, then we have been set free from the law or the binding authority of sin and death. And this is the wonderful exchange that happens for the one who goes from being in sin to being in Christ. That we now live under the binding authority of the Spirit of God. And that means we are liberated. You see, there's a, there's a really holy uh, paradox there. To be under the binding authority of the Holy Spirit is to be truly free, liberated. Sin will give you the illusion of liberty. It promises freedom. And you know, for brief moments, it seems to deliver. None of us would sin if it immediately squashed us, right? If it was immediately and in every sense negative, we'd start going, I don't think I'm going to sin ever again. Sin entraps us in part because it delivers for a while. It provides moments of pleasure. It provides moments where it stokes our pride and makes us feel good about ourselves. It will, for a moment, relieve anxiety, perhaps. It will, for a moment, make you feel like you're winning against this other person who hurt you. But what sane person will conclude that this sort of, quote, freedom to do what leads to death is actually liberating. What kind of mind comes to the conclusion that freedom, liberty, is best experienced when we are able and willing to do what will kill us? That's not liberty. The controlling authority of the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life, is liberty. And notice once again that all of this is in Christ Jesus. Now here's why that little clause once again is so important. Because Paul is speaking about the results of our status of being in Christ. Our liberty is the symptom of our being in Christ and not the other way around. So in other words... We don't somehow achieve liberty and then find our way to Christ. Our liberty is the symptom of our being in Christ. In verse 2, Paul is saying you can recognize the concrete reality of the Christian's assurance that they have been freed from all condemnation. You can see the concrete reality of that in the results of their being liberated from the ruling power of sin and death. The one follows the other. Like so many of you, a while back I got COVID. Thank God it was not severe and I didn't have to go to the hospital. Now, during that close to two-week time period, 
If I'd come to you and if I had said, my exhaustion, my nonstop coughing, and the fact that my mouth tastes like I ate a dead skunk, (laughs) that gave me COVID. You'd say, no, no. You'd say, you have COVID. Therefore, because of that, you're exhausted. You can't stop coughing, and you have skunk mouth. That's what you would say, right? It's important. That's an important distinction. Now, let's follow the gross with the sublime, shall we? Follow Paul's logic. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and one of the symptoms is that the Holy Spirit has set you free from bondage to sin. In other words, you being free from sin is not what makes you free of condemnation. If that were the case, then our justification would be based upon something about us. And that's not what it is. Christian, you do not need to achieve a higher degree of the Holy Spirit. You do not need to master any special techniques or add to what Christ has already achieved for you. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from the controlling power of sin and death. That means that if you are in Christ, you now suddenly have the freedom to not sin in that situation. To prefer God's glory in that set of circumstances. Whereas once your best efforts could not ultimately gain you a heart that delighted to do God's law, whereas once there was nothing in you that delighted in the glory of God and reveled in the message of the cross, now all of that has changed. You've been liberated. In Christ you have received the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that means you have been given new desires. You've been liberated from what enslaved you to the law of sin and death. You don't want adultery the way maybe you once did. You don't want drunkenness the way you once did. You don't want to amass worldly idols. Sins you never used to question are now things that you hate and things that that break your heart. Not only that, But now you have a new capacity, a new desire to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have a new desire to love your neighbor as yourself. And why? Why? Because he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That's your liberty, Christian. Finally, let's consider the Christian's walk. Well, there is an experience to all of this. We're not just talking about theories here. We're talking about reality that actually affects the way we are and the way we live. Paul's not trading in abstract concepts. What God has done in Christ and what the Spirit has wrought within us means actual change. In other words, amazing grace does not leave you unchanged. Look again at verses 3 and 4, and you see another for. For God has done what the law 
weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul once again uses the terminology of law, but I want you to notice what he's doing here. Now he changes its use. Here, Paul is saying that God has done what the law could not do. Paul here now is no longer talking about the law in sense of a broad concept of controlling authority. Now he narrows in and he focuses on the holy law of God, uh, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, God's everlasting moral law. And here in verse 3, Paul's use of the term law is a reference to that law, the specific law of God. And he's reiterating a point that he spent time making already in chapter 7. That the law of God, the holy moral law of God, has a very specific purpose. And one purpose that it does not have is to make sinners righteous. God's law is perfect. It's a reflection of his perfection. God's law is good. God's law is holy. For the Christian, for the one who is in Christ, the law of God has this wonderful, lasting, continuing function of being a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, training us to know what it means to love God and love our neighbor. If you want to know the basics of how to love God and how to love your neighbor, meditate on the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are all about the building blocks of loving God. The second six of the Ten Commandments are the fundamental baseline building blocks of how to love your neighbor. Okay? So for us, we look at the law of God and we say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law! The law of God is good. For the sinner, the law of God drives them to repentance. It exposes their sins so that they go looking for the Savior. The law of God also restrains Sin in the world. Imagine what it would be like if God had not written on the conscience of all of his human creatures things like murder is wrong, stealing a man's wife is wrong, stealing a man's property is wrong. He's written those things upon the conscience of believer and unbeliever alike. And imagine if he hadn't. You think the world is bad now? We wouldn't last five minutes in a world where God's law was completely absent. So thank God for his law. But there is something that the law of God cannot do, not because of a weakness in the law, but because of a problem with us. The law of God cannot save and was never intended to save a single sinner. The law cannot liberate a single sinner, for it was never designed to do that. And what that means, among other things, listen, is that your obedience cannot and will never be the thing that justifies you before God. Do we believe that, that obedience to God is important? Yes. Does your obedience to God justify you before God? No. 
Because the law was never designed to do that. Because the law was given to sinners. The law was given to sinners. Not to sinlessly perfect people. The law was given to sinners. So it was never designed to be the instrument by which sinners are justified. For the sinner, the law can do one thing, a necessary thing as it turns out. The law, for the sinner, can only shine a light on their guilt. It serves as a testimony in God's court of justice against them. And so God did what the law was never designed to do. God has justified sinners. He has liberated sinners from their bondage to the power of sin and death. And how has he done this? Again, verse 3, are you seeing it? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Incarnation and crucifixion. How does God justify sinners? If the law can't do it, then how is it done? Incarnation, crucifixion. God sent his Son in human flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. What was God doing on the cross in Christ? He was condemning sin. My sin and your sin. Listen, when the Father sent the Son, He did not say, you're going to love these people. They are awesome. They're the best. I mean, you talk about obedient. I wish they'd lighten up a little bit. Take some time off. All they want to do is worship and serve me. You're going to love it. No. This is the remarkable thing about the love. How we've sung it. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would send His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Not He would send His only Son to people who would love Him and greet Him and worship Him and serve Him. But He sent His Son to people who would kill Him. What we looked at last Sunday, the powerful mystery of the incarnation. God became a man in the person of Christ. And he condemned my sin. And all of you who are believers, all of you who are in Christ, he condemned your sin in his own flesh. My sin, your sin, was brought under the holy and just judgment, the condemnation of God upon the cross. Don't miss this, folks. That's where your justification lies. That's where your no condemnation lies. Right there on the cross as God condemns your sin in the flesh of Jesus. And don't miss this because this is the ground of our justification. God does not justify us on the basis of what he does in us. I'm going to say that again. God does not God does not justify us on the basis of what he does in us. In other words, God doesn't justify us on the basis of what he enables us to be or do. God justifies us on the basis of what he has done in the living, dying, and rising of Christ. In order, verse 4, why? 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law, what does the law require? That sin requires the shedding of blood. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk. Oh, now we get to, we actually live in light of this. We actually walk in a particular way because of all of this. Might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ's life of perfect, unbroken obedience to the law of God is credited to us. His death on the cross, the payment, the ransom payment for our sin, the judicial requirement for our sin has been paid completely. And so that righteous requirement of the law has been met in Christ in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, all of that has been credited to us. Christ did all of this so that it could be fulfilled in us. That's what we mean when we say something objective happened here. When God forgave us, he didn't just say, you know what, let's just let bygones be bygones. I'm good. If he were not holy... If he were not just, he could have done that. But he's holy and he's just. And that means our redemption, our justification, our no condemnation is grounded in an objective accomplishment by God himself. It's a just verdict now that God has rendered. His no condemnation is not based upon the fact that today he was in a good mood. It's based upon the fact that he spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You know, the prophets, um, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, prophesied of the new covenant to come. In other words, the fulfillment of God's everlasting covenant of grace. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell of that day when the new covenant will be fulfilled and God will write his law upon our hearts. And this is what God has done in Christ in liberating us from what used to hold us captive. He now has replaced a heart that has sin and death written across it. And he's given us a heart in which he has written his law across it. That's why the Christian says, how I love your law. It does not condemn. It's not the terrifying sentence of God anymore. I don't want to have any other gods before you, Lord. I want want to hallow your name. I don't want to profane it anymore. I want to honor your day. I don't want to disregard it anymore. I want to worship you and you alone. I don't want to worship idols anymore. I don't want to worship myself anymore. This is what it looks like when the law of God is written on your heart. I don't want to steal and I don't want to indulge my lusts. I want to to live in honesty and integrity. I don't want to lie. I don't want to live as a slave to coveting. Obedience to God now is no longer a hopeless endeavor if you're in Christ. It's what the great Scotsman Thomas Chalmers said. 
described it in that great phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. Love for God and His righteousness drives out bit by bit my remaining love for sin. And this is at the heart of the Christian's walk. And it all begins with the objective work of Jesus. It all hinges upon Christ on the cross. It's made possible by the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart. And without that, you'll only find yourself once again seeking to be justified before God by the law. If you have... If you have degenerative heart disease, you don't start vigorous and rigorous exercise to cure it. That's a a way to end your life right quick. No, what you need is a new heart, and then you can start the exercising. But what a tragedy it would be to be given a new heart, but then go on living as as though your old, diseased dying heart was still centered in your chest. Christian, listen to me. We no longer walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit who lives in us. Christ died to give you that liberty. Your sin has been condemned in Christ Jesus. Don't love it anymore. It will never, ever condemn you. So stay away from it. He was wounded for our transgressions. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No condemnation, Christian. Liberty from sin's power and sin's penalty. And a new life, a new walk. Not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This is your inheritance, Christian. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. You know these old words from Wesley's old hymn. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, we ask for your help that your word would find good soil in this place today and that we would be deeply rooted in your truth. Now, Lord, as we look to these ordinary means of yours, prepare our hearts to receive it by faith. This we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.